today on Ag News Daily. Doing a study like this helps them connect, helps them um, prioritize some of their checkoff funds. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. I am Delaney Howell reporting for the Ag News Daily Podcast, joined by Madison Honkamp, our intern for this spring. Excited to have Madison on here with me for the next couple of months. Madison, how are you doing today? I'm doing good, Delaney. What about you? Not too bad. Not too bad. Madison, you got to tell me, how was it walking to class today? It's feeling pretty cold out here in central Iowa. It was terrible. Um, <laughs> there was just snow blowing, and then this morning it looked like there was a blizzard outside. Yes, I was- know. Not good. Not my favorite time of year. Why do I live in Iowa? That's what I always ask myself in the winter. Yeah, not at all, honestly. Yes. Well, we're excited to have you on the podcast today. Um, Madison, what do you have today in the way of news? I know you said you had a couple of stories to bring to our listeners today. Anything jumping out at you? Well, the first one that really caught my eye was that French and German farmers are currently destroying their crops after GMOs were found in Bayer seeds. Hmm. And in Europe, GMOs are actually a huge controversy. So they try to avoid them. And so, and even in France, they have completely outlawed their cultivation. Yeah, that's interesting. So they're, they're, what, how are they, does it say how they're destroying their crops? Are they going through and spraying them? They're actually just digging them up. Oh. Yeah. That sounds like a lot of time and energy then that they're wasting. They obviously wasted a lot of time and energy planting those crops and now they're just going to destroy them. I know. Hmm. I thought that was crazy. That is crazy. Interesting to see. I don't know that we'll have a big market there because obviously a lot of U.S. crops are GMOs, but definitely something to keep an eye on. Another thing to keep an eye on as we're talking about GM GMOs and GM-related crops is dicamba soybeans. I was reading an interesting article. It's actually on NPR, and it's, I would say, more of an opinion type of piece. The The headline is, Is Fear Driving Sales of Monsanto's Dicamba-Proof Soybeans? So in essence, this article interviewed a couple of different growers across the Midwest and um, parts of the Southeast talking about dicamba products and specifically the seed extend, which is that dicamba-resistant soybean trait. Uh, In essence, the article is saying that, you know, a lot of growers aren't necessarily picking to grow dicamba soybeans, but because of their neighbors and other growers in their area, a lot of farmers feel like their hand has been forced into buying dicamba extend soybeans or other varieties from other soybean companies because they're worried that their neighbors spraying dicamba on their soybean, on their dicamba-resistant soybeans, will spread into their fields and kill their fields. So it, it, currently, we're seeing extend soybeans have about 60 to 75% of the American soybean market share. And again, a lot of farmers have said, and this article highlights that, that not necessarily was their choice to switch to extend or other dicamba-related soybean products, but they just felt like their hand was being forced because their neighbors and other folks were growing it in their areas. Well, I think it's it's great for them to kind of be aware that them spraying will kind of affect their neighbors. Mm-hmm. But I think it's interesting that they're feeling kind of pressured to buy those seeds. Yeah, absolutely. And I know we've seen regulations come out from the EPA, and that's still kind of up in the air. We know it's approved here for the next growing season, but 
this might be something that we see on down the line again uh, for, you know, Congress or EPA or whoever to address and, and maybe put more restrictions on if enough people come forth and say, you know, I didn't want to grow this product, but I feel like I have to. I think we need more regulations or different regulations. So definitely something to consider um, as you're as you're picking your products. And I'm sure most most of our listeners probably already have their seed needs locked in and loaded for this year. But just thought that was an interesting article to bring up. Yeah, that is very interesting. And then to kind of continue on with the soybean um, topic, and this article says that U.S. farmers is it's predicted that U.S. farmers will actually plant too many acres of soybeans in, this mm-hmm. year. Um, which I know that has been kind of a huge topic lately, but, um, even this says it's a possible explosion of domestic supplies beyond 1 billion bushels Mm -hmm. later this year. And so, and then this would even be ahead of 2018's record. Yeah, that's crazy. Does it say, Madison, how many acres people are, that article or those people are predicting for U.S. soybeans being planted? Let me see if I can find it really quick. And I know that's definitely something a lot of folks are concerned about. We hear it time and time again from our analysts on Market Monday. We're going to have Ted Seifert on on Monday, actually, and he is one of the analysts that said time and time again, a billion bushel plus in soybeans. And I mean, even as we've seen it, a lot of growers have said they're going to stick to those rotations, corn on corn, corn on soybeans etc. So these trade things don't really seem to have upset the uh, corn and soybean rotation very much. Yeah, and I'm not seeing a acre number. Okay, well I'll let you continue looking for that, Madison. I'm going to keep going on here with some news. When we're talking about the EPA and what's going on in D.C. right now, certainly a lot of things going on, and I just want to tick off a couple of things here. We've seen the EPA and the Army Corps of Engineers. They've scheduled a public hearing in Kansas City for February 27th and 28th to allow public comment and um, basically people to come forth on the new proposed waters of the U.S. rule. One thing to keep in mind, though, is if we do see a government shutdown next Friday, the 15th of February, I'm not sure, actually I'm positive they will not have those meetings go ahead as planned. A quick update on the government shutdown. Sounds sounds like members of the House Senate Committee who were tasked with finding a border security promise or compromise, they claim to reporters that they're nearing a, breakthrough, a breakthrough to avert a second government shutdown and stop the current stopgap bill, which expires next Friday. So it sounds like They think they're close. Of course, then we've got to see the House and the Senate each vote on that. But sounds like they're trying to make promise or trying to make compromises and move forward at this point in time. Um, But then to kind of jump back for that, the soybeans, I couldn't find an acre number, but they are saying they're hoping that the this kind of jump in bushels that we will have for yields at the end of this next season, mm-hmm. um, will kind of encourage farmers to kind of cut back yeah. on how many acres are planted. I think it's going to come as no surprise to folks that we are going to be sitting in a soybean glut here for the next probably couple of years, especially as we look at what's going on in the trade front. Um, however, 
Uh, another interesting thing going on in the trade front that maybe hasn't had a lot of attention up until this point is our relationship with Brazil. The Trump administration is trying to forge closer ties with Brazil after their new controversial president, Har Bolsonaro, was elected into office, and he is preparing to visit Washington, D.C. next month as part of the uh, issues, I guess, on the agenda to talk about is definitely going to be Brazil's buying of wheat, ethanol, and pork. Ted McKitty, the USDA Undersecretary for Trade and Foreign Agricultural Affairs, has been in Brazil actually this week with our U.S. Trade Chief Agricultural Negotiator, Greg Dowd, and they said that those two gentlemen have been pressing this new administration in Brazil to honor their commitment to buy U.S. wheat and lift the country's ban on U.S. pork and also scrap their ethanol tariffs. And I know, Madison, you mentioned you did have a little bit of ethanol-related news. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, this actually kind of happened back in – it started back in June. Um, but a – tanker ship was loaded with ethanol in Texas and was supposed to go to China, but with all the tariff issues, it had to stop in Malaysia. And now um, it finally arrived in China earlier, well, I guess this month. Mm. And it it was just kind of one of those crazy things that ended up happening that nobody really understands why they did it that way. Yeah, it's interesting too. Um, I can't remember what report I was reading, but I know uh, Malaysia's exports of ethanol have uh, increased pretty substantially heading over to China. And it's like when you look at Malaysia's ethanol production, they produce very little ethanol in the country itself. So this article is pretty much confirming what a lot of people were suspecting, and that is that U.S. ethanol is having to get basically rerouted through Malaysia to get to China. Yeah, that's kind of what this is making it sound like, is they had to stop there so that it could eventually get there, get to China. Yeah, interesting. Interesting. Well, maybe we'll have to put our reporter hats on and see if we can uh, follow up on that one, see if we can get an interesting interview to confirm or deny that suspicion, Madison. Yeah, definitely. I I need to look more into that. It's very interesting. Yeah, that will be interesting for sure. Well, the last kind of quick piece of news I had for today, and that's talking about the biodiesel industry, kind of ethanol's right-hand man there. We've been seeing a lot of controversial things happening in D.C. right now, especially in Congress as it relates to biodiesel. Um, And that is essentially this biodiesel tax credit. We've seen quite a few plants shutting down and more in danger of doing so in the biodiesel industry is basically sounding the alarm that an expired tax credit has moved from a lobbying issue to an imminent threat for the biodiesel industry. About 50 members from the National Biodiesel Board flew to Capitol Hill this week urging congressional offices to reinstate that dollar-per-gallon biodiesel and renewable diesel tax credit in an upcoming government funding bill. Essentially, they're asking Congress to reinstate that when they hopefully get a new budget approved here before uh, February 15th, excuse me. But it sounds like quite a few biodiesel folks have been feeling the effects of that as well. So now we're seeing not only the ethanol industry feeling some negative margins, it sounds like 
the biodiesel industry is also following suit as well. Well, Madison, did you have any other news for today or should we hop over and look at the markets? I did not have anything else. Let's do the markets. All right. And of course, folks, our markets are sponsored by our partners at the Zayner Group. We're going to have Ted Seifert on this coming Monday, so be sure to check him out on our hashtag Market Monday episode. If Ted or any of the other analysts at Zayner Group spark your interest and uh, you have you have maybe some ideas or strategies you'd like help with, give him a call today at 312-277-0050. Looking across the grain markets today, we're seeing quite a bit of red on the screen. The March corn contract down three and a half cents at three seventy-six and a half, while the May losing three and three quarters cent at three eighty-four and a quarter. Soybeans given up quite a bit on the day today. The March contract down eight and a half cents at nine thirteen and a quarter, while the May down eight and a half cents at nine twenty-seven and a quarter. Looking over in the wheat pits, they definitely took it the biggest hit today with the March contract losing twelve and three quarters cents at five thirteen and a quarter, while the May down eleven and three quarters cent to end at five seventeen even. Hopping over to look into the livestock market, seeing some mixed trade today between the live cattle and feeder cattle markets. The February contract down ten cents to end at one twenty six thirty, while the April live cattle contract lost thirty two and a half cents on the day to close at one twenty six eighty two and a half. Looking over at the March feeder cattle pit, we see the March contract up seven and a half cents to close at one forty three twenty five, while the April up two cents to close at one forty four eighty seven and a half. Looking over into the lean hog pits, the the February contract down sixty five cents to close at fifty five twenty seven and a half, while the April down a dollar thirty to end the day at fifty nine sixty. And rounding out our markets with the Dairy Class 3 Milk Parlor. February contract up 4 cents today to close at $13.98, while the March up 19 cents to close at $14.55. All right, well, Madison, continuing with some NCBA-related discussion, although this today's discussion really relates to many industries as a whole, talking to Conley Nelson, who's a chairman for the U.S. Meat Export Federation, talking about meat exports, and how he sees those advancing for U.S. industries. So let's kick it over to Conley. Chatting with Conley Nelson at the U.S. MEF uh, booth here. He's the chairman for U.S. MEF, U.S. Meat Export Federation. Conley, tell me a little bit about how you got into your role as chairman. Okay, uh, sure thing. I've been, I was president of National Pork Board, and when I uh, served my term as president there. Uh, the pork industry appointed me as a representative on the executive committee f- to USMEF from pork. And so I've been on, uh, since 2012, I've been on the executive committee and I got into the officer ranks um, starting um, three years ago. So just working my way up to where I'm chair this year and I'm looking forward to uh, doing that. Well, there are certainly no shortage of issues for you. I'm sure this past year has been kind of a turbulent one for USMEF as well as here into the future. When you look at the trade, uh, the trade scene as a whole, what are your thoughts moving forward? How are we going to get some new markets opened up if we don't see a deal reach with China, if we don't see USMCA go through? Well, first off, I'd say uh, there's, there is a lot of optimism about um, our uh, red meat exports. You know, uh, beef was up 8%. On volume, 15% on um, 
on value this past year um, in 2018. Uh, pork is, even with all the tariff issues that have gone on, still was uh, up 1%. You know, so I think you could really consider those really two phenomenal years for red meat exports. Um, so, you know, I think uh, there's just there's a lot of optimism. Um, I think agriculture and and uh, livestock producers and they're they understand what that free trade means free trade both ways and they're you know and they've been they've been taking a hit from it but i think they're willing to go the distance and get this set up because if we get free trade agreements with some of these countries it's going to be a big win for uh, u.s livestock yeah and and talking about those numbers for red meat in particular beef and and uh, pork both being up when you look at exports, why do you think we're continuing to see such strong demand? Well, there's, you know, first off, I think when you look at the, the quality of U.S. beef and pork, um, I think it's second to none. Um, and you look at the volume and the, and the price that we can offer countries, um, you know, we, we have a very competitive uh, position um, in the world with our, with our red meats. So I think that's a, that's a big part, you know. We're a reliable customer, um, you know, Japan, they know they've they got the volume they need from us, they got the quality they need, and, you know, so they, they remain our number one value, um, you know, country, and, and it's because of those things. When you look at China in particular, I mean, up 1% in pork, China is a huge consumer of, of pork in general. What are you hearing about African swine fever? Is it worse than what we're seeing? Obviously, we're not getting government reports, so we can't see how much we're exporting at the moment. But you are an export federation. What are you seeing as far as exports to China go? Well, I'm, I sure don't have the, the answers on all of that. That's a million-dollar question when you think about um, the information that does come out of China. It's hard to get your uh, head wrapped around what's really going on there. Um, I think from a pork industry standpoint, it, the the... That disease is, is, is going to take a toll on the Chinese pork industry, and it's going to have a huge impact. And, you know, it's part of the optimism is they're going to have to come back into the market at some point because their numbers are going to be way down because of it. Let's switch tracks a little bit. Let's talk a little bit about this study that uh, USMEF did, exporting corn through U.S. beef and pork. Give me your synopsis of this study. What are kind of the highlights from it? Well, I think, uh, you know, we do this study because, number one, uh, you know, we want to make sure that, you know, that corn and soybean, um, the producers, they get a lot out of, of livestock production. And so doing a study like this helps them connect helps them um, prioritize some of their checkoff funds to go to U.S. Meat Export Federation. And corn, uh, the corn associations and the U.S. soybean associations, they're very supportive of U.S. Meat, Meat Export Federation. So just to highlight on this particular study, uh, $0.39 cents a bushel uh, corn you can attribute to the red meat exports. Um, uh, so... That's a that's a pretty big number on a three dollars and fifty three cents thirty nine cents of that being from exports, and not counting the impact of the DDGs that we, the industries buy. And so, um, you know, it's a it's a good cooperative relationship between those commodities and our livestock uh, producers. So we just want to keep it that way. Absolutely. So how much? 
I mean, outside of this study, how much are you working with groups like the National Corn Growers Association or the United Soybean Export Council or USAC or some of those other um, grain-focused commodity groups? Well, U.S. Meat Export Federation is a, is a very unique organization. It's represented by what we call nine sectors, and uh, uh, beef producers, pork producers, lamb producers. Then you have your... Uh, um, grain seed producers, and then you have your oil seed producers. They're each sectors, so they're they are a big role. They play a big. They have people on the boards, representing them, helping make decisions about how we uh, do promotion worldwide for livestock. So, so they're a very intricate part of the U.S. Meat Export Federation. And you're also um, a grain farmer too. So you're you're kind of taking some some of that uh, that front driving position. Well. Technically, I'm not a grain farmer. I own I own my fam- the family farm that I bought that from my parents twenty uh, uh, some years ago. So I have the land, and I'm trying to keep that going for my kids and family. And um, having a hundred and twenty six year f- uh, family farm is important to me. Uh, but uh, um, you know, so and I rent it to my brother in law, who's two farms directly. I don't work directly uh, farming. Um, as you look ahead for this year, 2019, for U.S. MEF, what are some things that you guys have on the docket lined up? Well, we, uh, you know, we want to, uh, we have a lot of competition in Japan, and that's a that's a very big critical deal here because uh, a lot of our com- competitors in the world are getting free trade agreements with Japan, and we don't have one with that. So it's really critical that U.S. and Japan work out a bilateral agreement that uh, will allow us the same kind of access that our competitors have. Because we can beat our competitors, but we got to have the same level playing field. And so Japan is a is a very, very top priority for us to keep that market going. Um, they they buy a lot of the, the cuts that are important for us to have, be able to ship to. Um, so um, they're just a very good market. So that's that's a really a uh, probably a big priority. Um, another one is you know we got to get these uh, steel tariffs off so that don't impact uh, the Canada Mexico agreement. Um, that's really really important for trade this coming year. Um, those are big big things that we don't know how the outcomes are going to be yet. But with if those come out in a favorable way for U.S. agriculture, it'll be a huge impact for all of us that work in agriculture. Absolutely. Conley, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Well, Madison, again, that was Conley Nelson with the U.S. Meat Export Federation. Really interesting study that they've put together there with so much of our U.S. corn being essentially walked out or or really not walked out because they're not live animals that we're exporting but a lot of that corn and uh, feedstuffs that we're growing here in the United States are being essentially exported through our red meat friends. Yeah I definitely always think it's interesting to kind of hear where corn actually goes because you always see it grown and you see it harvested but you never fully see that kind of final point Mm -hmm. for it and so kind of hearing that and how they present it was very interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Well, tomorrow I'm going to be joined by Natalina Sense. She's going to guest co-host with me on the podcast tomorrow. She's a longtime friend of mine. She's been on the podcast a couple of times, and she's also um, a journalist in essence for Meredith, Meredith Successful Farming. So I'll let her give her full bio tomorrow. 
Madison, you got any big plans this weekend? It is actually our Sigma Alpha Formal this weekend, oh. so I'll be heading down to Lake Rathbun. There you go. I was a Sigma Alpha in, uh, back in my day in college. <laughs> All right, it's, well, you um, are going to have so much fun with that. I'm jealous. And then, Delaney, where can our listeners find past podcasts? Oh, Madison, I'm so glad you asked that. Everybody can head to Global Ag Network right now. Not only are we hosted there, but we've got a ton of great podcasts on there as well. I want to give a special shout out to the Dryline Farmer podcast because they had a special State of the Union uh, podcast addressed the other day. So be sure to check that stuff out. You can also interact with us on social media, Facebook and Twitter at Ag News Daily. Madison, with that, should we let the folks go? Let's let them go.